Welcome to Clark County Today. I'm your host, David Medore. Today our guest is David Hedrick. David, you have a story to tell. I do. Uh, you ran for Congress, what, about a year ago? Mm -hmm. And uh, something uh, transpired after that that you made the front page of the Columbian, and it wasn't very flattering. Uh, and we'd like to be able to give you a chance to be able to tell what really happened there. Mm -hmm. I'd love to. Yeah, thanks for having me on, David, too. I appreciate it. My pleasure. So the the night, and a lot of people they wondered, you know, kind of what was going on, and they saw the media reports. And first, I want to do, I do want to say that my wife, uh, I we've both spoken about this and decided that, you know, it's it's right for me to come out and say what happened because there's a lot of people that are going through a similar thing to what we went through, and a lot of guys, especially who have experienced this, and most of them aren't as high profile, but they suffer through a lot of the consequences that we've experienced as well. So we decided talking about it, praying about it, that the right thing to do is to come on, tell everyone exactly what happened, so hopefully they can, you know, what Barack Obama called a teachable moment <laughs> can occur yes. and people can learn from the experience. So this is just not something that, that you experience that's kind of just between you and your wife. This is something that other people have walked through this, experienced uh, the, <laughs> there's some insight you can bring to other people because you're not the only one in this boat. No, I'm not the only one at all. This is something that's actually very common in our community, and it's something that's happened much more often than it should have. Uh, and back last October, that's when this, this all started. You know, the campaign for me was over, and I was home one night, and my wife and I were having a discussion. You know, everything was going great, and we got an uh, email from my ex. It wasn't a favorable email. Your ex-wife. My ex-wife, yes. And she uh, had sent an email. Um, I wanted to calm down. You know, let's wait. Let's respond to this. Let's think about what the correct response should be. Uh, my wife wanted more of an immediate response, <laughs> kind of the emotional, let's go, you know, attack right back kind of thing. So um, you were at, at your computer, you were checking your email. and well, you she, well, she actually checked it. I was building, I was assembling a desk chair, I think, at the time for a business that I was working on. So, so your wife got the, the email got the from email. your ex-wife. Yes, she got the email from my ex-wife, and uh, she wasn't happy about it. And, you know, so I basically said, you know, let's not respond right away to her. Let's calm down and, you know, think about it. You know, overnight, tomorrow we'll send her an email. We'll kind of respond. So that email upset your wife? It upset her quite a bit, yeah. They don't have a very good relationship. My wife and my ex-wife, you know, probably, which is I think is typical in a lot of situations, they don't get along very well. So uh, they, essentially, that's what I wanted to do. Uh, that response, that wasn't going to happen. My wife made it clear that we were responding immediately. And, you know, so I, at that point, uh, tried to kind of reconcile. We had a disagreement. It was just a disagreement on a pairing plan, essentially, was what the whole thing was about. Okay. And that email was addressed to you. So it was addressed wife, to me, yes. And so your wife checked your email. She checked my email. Okay. So it wasn't addressed to your wife. No, it no, not. it wasn't. Okay. But she has full access. And this is one of the things, you know, when we did, we did the uh, pre-marriage counseling and all of the, the things that a lot of people do when they get married. And I think it's a great idea. And, you know, one of the things that when talking to, uh, we talked to a couple church leaders and that kind of thing, and one of the things they do to keep an open relationship is you always, and one of the things they suggested is be in a complete open book. You don't have your own emails, you don't have your own passwords, you don't have your own, because it really builds trust because you know everything is always open mm -hmm. to your partner, to your wife, to your husband, um, that kind of thing. It's always completely open. And so that was the idea is that, you know, so she did have access and she checked it on occasion because my ex would send emails and she wanted to get them and find out, you know, what was going on. So it was kind of one of those things. She checked it. She wasn't happy about it, of what she received. Uh, my Essentially, Max was trying to shortchange us on parenting time with my son, and uh, that we, she wasn't happy about it. And, and I wanted to review the parenting plan, take time, step back, say, you know, okay, what's the right thing to do here? How do we solve this? Um, and so instead, because we were going to respond immediately, my wife was pretty animated, 
and saying that we were going to respond immediately. So I basically just picked up the phone and called. And I said, okay, you know, let's, here's the disagreement, and here's how we need to solve this disagreement. And, uh, and essentially we, we talked about our differences and how we didn't see eye to eye on what the parenting plan said. And, and she, I, I was in the power position. I had my son. I could have kept him longer. So it was, and every time my ex has been in the power position, she's abused it and used that to her advantage. Yeah, and so I while, didn't. While you were talking on the phone with your ex-wife, your wife was there. She's watching. Just listening to you. Yes. She couldn't, she was, you were not on speakerphone. No, it wasn't speakerphone. She, but she was hearing that conversation. She, you, you talked to her. She heard the conversation. She knew what we were, essentially, she knew what she was saying. She could tell, interpret it from what I was saying. So, um, and essentially what, hap- what ended up happening was I said, okay, well, let's negotiate. You think the plan says you have this time. I think I have this time. So let's split it in half and, you know, come up with some kind of arraignment where you're getting some of what you want. I'm getting some of what I want. It's in the best interest of our son. It kind of meets the terms to the best of our ability. I think that's a great solution. And... Um, so that's that's the direction I went. When I got off the phone, my wife was not happy at all. Uh, she saw that as you know compromising with someone who definitely has never compromised when she had this you know a position of power. So you, you had uh, you gave up a little bit during that conversation. And, I did, and, and your wife did not like that. She didn't like it. She saw that as me giving in to my ex, of course. Which you know this is probably something that a lot of married couples go through if you have an ex. It's you know um, so she's very sensitive to me standing my ground and not giving up an inch. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I recognize that. But at the same time, you know, I, we do have a son in common, and it's in his best interest for me to try to, you know, be amicable with my ex and to sure. try to agree. And, you know, the, I, I, you know, when I said that the two things we need to be concerned with is not who's in a power position. When you're, you know, when you go through a divorce situation and you have a child, the question is what does the parenting plan say, number one, and number two, what's in the best interest of our child? It's not who's in a power position. Sure. And it shouldn't be. How old was your son at the time? He was about three and a half at the time. So he's uh, still a young guy. But, you know, I'm trying to teach him by example. And I thought I was setting a good example. Uh, you know, I, I thought I was doing the right thing. My wife, of course, thinks at this time, you know, she thought that sometimes doing the right thing isn't the right thing. And this is, you know, one of the situations. Sure. So, so anytime you have that kind of three-way relationship or, or just simply to keep even civil with each other, there, it's always a challenge, it sounds like. So that set the stage. That you hung up that phone call, mm-hmm. and you and your wife had words. Right. And she wasn't happy. I mean, she was obviously very angry. She was becoming very heated. And you know, I'm one of those big people, and most people that know me from the campaign even, my, most of my volunteers recognize that when other people would get flustered and heated, I usually said, you know, let's step back, think about it, decide what's the right thing to do, come back, you know, even if it's tomorrow, come back and actually make a logical decision that's going to take us in the right direction rather than emotionally reacting to something that we don't even need to respond to a lot of times. And uh, so I attempted to do that. When she became very heated and I could see the argument was going you know, nowhere and it was you know, escalating, I said, I'm going to step away from the situation. I put the kids in bed and I went out with a political buddy of mine and we had uh, a male friend too, so that insinuation isn't out there. Uh, it, but it was, we sat down around and had coffee and appetizers at Sherry's for about three hours, you know, kind of giving my wife the chance to cool off is what I was trying to so do. So your, your wife was at home yes. and she was continuing to think about this well, you're off with your uh, with your friend, mm-hmm. and you and so at some point you come back home. Right, I did come home, and now she had a. My wife had been calling me quite a few times during the, you know, oh. and this came out kind of during the court process. People found out that my wife she had called me 86 times total is what we told the bill up when we looked at the cell phone bill. So, Over what period of time? Uh, about three hours. So oh. <laughs> it's a pretty significant amount of calls. I had actually shut my phone off because I was saying, okay, she's not calming down, she's not cooling off. We need a you know period where both of us can kind of 
you know, clear our heads and come back and have a rational discussion, you know, tomorrow morning. And I knew she had been, she had had a few alcoholic drinks, and I knew that at the time. And I had been drinking coffee, so I wasn't drinking. So I had a pretty, you know, strong idea that, you know, this wasn't going to go the right direction if we had a discussion tonight. It wasn't, you know, we weren't going to resolve anything. And it was better to have the discussion the next day, you know, when we're both, you know, completely sober. And there isn't, and you know, that isn't having an influence. So while you were out, your wife was not calming down. She was, it sounds like she was getting more, the more she thought about it, and the more, maybe the more she was drinking, mm-hmm. uh, the more volatile the situation was becoming. Right, right. And I didn't realize that, so I had shut my phone off. So I returned home, and, uh, you know, when I returned home, I had found out that in my absence, she had been destructive to the house, and there were certain things that she had done. And I don't, I don't, I mean, they went over some of it in court, but I don't need to go into all the details of it. But it was, you know, she... She was upset. She was upset, and she wasn't behaving, you know, the way that she should have been behaving on the situation. And uh, she knew that uh, later on. You know, that was something she admitted. And it was possible, you know, part of it was an influence of the alcohol. And she'd also been taking painkillers at the same time because she had a medical issue that arose during pregnancy that she was on. And the mix of the two, I think, was just a violent combination. And it shouldn't have happened. And, uh, and so when I got home, when I realized that was happening, I said, okay, you know, this, this can't happen. You know, this isn't the right situation for me to come back to. So I'm going to take my kids, and we're going to go to a hotel for the night. And to do that, of course... You were I, leave, leaving your wife home alone. Well, no, what I, before I left, though, I was going to call a friend of hers. And have a, her, she has a best friend that lives just on the other side of town. And I was going to call, have her come over and stay with her. Okay. And ask her to stay, and I would take the kids out of the situation. And when she sobered up the next day... So you have more than one... Okay. Do you, I do. Three year old at have, the time, three year old son. Three yeah, and three and a half year old son, and we had about a one and a half, one to one and a half year old daughter, together. From your wife. From my current wife, yes, mm-hmm. yeah. So we, uh, so we were going to do. Then I was going to say, I'll take them. You know, we're going to distance ourselves. We're going to have a friend come to stay with her because of her. I didn't want to leave her in that situation by herself. Uh, to do that, of course, my I had to go to my computer because I had just got a new phone the day before. And I know a lot of people, probably like me, they back their phones up onto their computers nowadays. Well, I hadn't transferred the numbers in. So I didn't have her best friend's number. So I sit at the computer, and I quickly find out that the computer password's been changed on my computer. So she's essentially locked me out of the computer. I ask for the password. She doesn't know why, but it's because I'm trying to get her friend's number to call her to stay because I'm leaving the situation. And uh, she, at that point, that's when she launched their, the first part of the attack, where physically she grabbed me and she hit me once the first time. She punched me in the arm. And uh, I kind of, at first I was confused because this isn't typical behavior of my wife, and I knew she'd been drinking, and I have never seen her act like this before. You know, so I kind of looked at it, and I, and I was thinking, is this really happening? <laughs> you know, it seemed really strange, you know, that I'm, I'm being, you know, you, you're hitting me now. Like, you've gone from being violent to stuff and yelling to, to actually physically attacking me. And, uh, I, and from that point, you know, it got more physical where she realized that it didn't really hurt me the first time she did it, so she was going to try again. And she started punching and hitting, and... Uh, it eventually led to uh, me blocking her arms as best I could. Then she picked up a metal chair, which most people that have read the Colombian reports have seen. But at that point, she picked up a chair. And when she did that, I realized that the situation was serious, that someone was going to get hurt, and uh, I had to put a stop to it. So I removed the chair from her, and I restrained her physically. And I told her as soon as she stopped swinging, she would be released. But Uh, she couldn't. How did you restrain her? Well, I pulled the chair out of her hand, and I actually took her down to the ground, and a very clumsy <laughs> takedown, too, but given the situation, it was um, that's kind of how it went. So it wasn't, you know, beautiful or gentle or graceful like they show you on, you know, you study it in the Marine Corps, for instance, the takedowns, but it's not on a pretty mat. This isn't a bedroom. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the realities of it are, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't pretty, but 
you know, it, given the situation, I didn't really see another option. Mm -hmm. There was, you know, and I held her down. Was that this, carpet? It was carpet. Yeah, it was a carpeted bedroom. But, yeah, I held her down, and basically she was still trying to hit me when I held her down at first. And I told her that, you know, when you calm down and stop swinging, I'm going to let you up. You cannot physically attack. You know, that's something that's not going to be allowed. Um, and if you try to hit me again when I let you up, I'm going to take you back down and hold you down again. You can't. That's something that's, we're not crossing that line. So you're not beating your wife. No. You're, you're restraining her. Restraining her. You have to do something. Otherwise, you're going to get right. bashed on top of the head with a metal chair. Yes. It was a bad situation to be in. And, you know, I didn't really see any alternative. I think it was a pretty proportionate response, you know, considering to do that. Were you, right now you're very cool. Mm -hmm. Where were you temperature-wise then? I was actually pretty calm at the time, which is, uh, I think it's a Marine Corps thing where you're taught kind of to stay, even when everything around you is going crazy, you kind of just stay calm. And, you know, to the best of your ability. Now, you may get a little bit emotional. You're going to feel some of that, but you have to control it. And I really did that. I mean, my voice was probably a little louder than it is now, I would assume. Uh, but it wasn't, I was definitely not being aggressive, not screaming, not that kind of thing. It was more, you know, I, I, I was in such shock, I think, <laughs> that this whole thing was actually happening. Like, is this real? Like, did this, you know, am I really about to be hit with a chair in my own home? So it didn't, it almost didn't seem real at the time. Uh -huh. so. you, you've had time to think about it between uh, then and now. Mm -hmm. go, uh, would, would you change the... You're, uh, go back and you know, I wish I could re, re, redo that? No, I don't think I would. And see, that's the thing. I, I've thought about that a lot. And, you know, what, given the information I had at the time, you know, if, if, you know, knowing what I know now, you know, in hindsight, you can always say there's something you would okay. do differently. But given what I knew at the time, I think I made pretty good decisions. And I don't think that I would advise someone differently if they were in that situation to react in a different way than okay. I did. We're going to have to take a break right here. Uh, we're at 15 minutes already almost. So, uh, Continue on to the next the next segment in a minute. Okay, welcome back. We're continuing the story here to, to uh, find out from your history, from you, from your firsthand experience, what happened in this in this situation. You were at the point where you were restraining your wife, mm -hmm. and she had been drinking, and she was becoming she had become violent, and your Marine Corps training uh, was kicking in. You're just simply not being violent, matching violence with violence, but instead. You're trying to uh, just simply defend yourself, restrain her, hopefully bring calm and order to the situation. Mm -hmm. Was it working? It, well, at first I thought it was. After I held her down, first she was you know, physically violent at first. And, um, but then she stopped. And when she started to calm down, you know, I talked to her calmly. You know, here's what is going on. I'm not trying to hurt you. I held you down because you, know, you can't hit me with a chair. <laughs> you can't swing at me. That's not you know, something that is going to happen in this house. It's just not. And, uh, and I said, you know, I'm going to call your friend and ask her to stay with you tonight. Then I told her what I was going to do. You know, I'm trying to calm the situation as I'm, you know, holding her down. I said, you know, basically that's what I'm going to do. You still needed the password to do that. Right, right. Well, at this, I, I know I needed the password, but I was trying to r uh, rationalize with her mm -hmm. say, this is what I'm trying to do because I want you to have a trusted friend come stay with you. You can talk to, you know, you can uh, tell her how you feel about the situation and get it out. And, but it's something that we obviously need to be distanced from this because it's when it gets to the point of physical violence, we're not having a discussion anymore. This isn't a husband and wife healthy relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a violent relationship. Mm -hmm. And and so I basically explained that, and I could see her, you know, the breathing slowing down. You know, she was showing indications that she was calming down. Um, I released her at that point, and she got up and went, stormed out to the living room, and a little bit later she called the police from that point. Did you know that she was on the phone with the police? It took me a minute. I heard her kind of talking in the living room. I was all the way back in the bedroom, and I was actually back on the computer trying to find a way around the block she had done. And um, in the meantime, she's, uh, she's calling 911. 
In the meantime, she's calling 911. And she reported She what? reported that I had, she was angry, and she reported that I had assaulted her and committed domestic violence. And her, in which she explained at trial, she talked a lot about this, but she explained how it was, you know, she was angry and I wasn't validating her feelings. And she had tried physically, she had tried everything she could, and she couldn't get to me. I was still the calm, you know, exterior that I usually have. And because she couldn't kind of, you know, get in there and, you know, feel like I was hurting like she was, it was her next instinct was, I'm going to reach out and try to get someone else to cause him pain because I'm not able to myself. And in her current state with the alcohol and probably the mix of the prescription medication she had, um, it, it may have made it seem like a more good idea, even though something that you normally, rationally, you would say this isn't, this isn't a good idea. You may have, you've heard the 911 tapes, I assume. I have. Did it sound like she was slurring her words or having other obvious symptoms that would indicate that she had been drinking? She didn't sound much like she's slurring her words, but she uh, usually the way I can tell if my wife's been drinking is she gets more emotional. And you can definitely hear that in the tape. That's kind of how she acts if she has been. She doesn't drink a lot typically, but if she does, if she even has a couple of drinks, I can tell she becomes more emotional as a person. And she was definitely emotional on the uh, tape. And she actually told them that I had hit them, had hit her in the front of the face and the back of the head multiple times in hard is what she said. Hard in the front, hard in the back. Um, which, which actually that was, I'm glad she mentioned that because it actually benefited me later when they could see that, you know, you have a Marine that outweighs her by over 80 pounds. And there's not a single mark, not a scratch, not a bruise, not a red spot, nothing anywhere. And it just didn't make sense. So when you, when did you discover that she was on the phone with 911? Did you walk in on that conversation? I did. I walked out because I thought maybe, I realized, I said, oh, wait, she has a phone. <laughs> and that's what at first when I heard her on the phone, I was thinking, I can just grab her phone. It hadn't occurred to me at the time, but I was thinking her best friend's number is going to be in her phone. So I can simply pick up her phone and use it. And I heard her on the phone. So I, as I started walking down out of the living room, uh, I heard her and I noticed that she was on. With the way she was talking, I could tell she was on, obviously. It seemed like this is a 911 call. This is a, you know, she's uh, reporting me for something. And what was your reaction to that? At that point, I realized that when she had done that, it was best that I just stay away from her. And uh, I knew at that point I was going to have to wait for the police to come if that was the case. So I kind of said, you know, what are you doing? You know, at first I said, are you telling them that you hit me, that you're calling on yourself? And uh, she's, you know, I think she said I, that she admitted that she had slapped me or something like that. And then I just turned around and said, no, I'm just going to walk away because, you know, that's. Um, so you didn't hang up the phone. You didn't nope. try to say, hey, my wife, grab the phone or anything like that. You just let her talk. She so she finished off the 911 call. She finished the call. And I actually, at that point, even mid-call, so this is mid-call, I turned around and walked back to the bedroom and said, I'm just going to wait. Now, obviously, the police are coming, and I'm just going to stay here and wait for them to, to come. So she completed the call. And I think at this point, finally, she had gotten, at least felt like she had gotten it off her chest or something. She had come back to the room to talk to me afterwards, and she was much more calm than she was prior to the 911 call. And uh, so that's what it took to calm her down, strangely, but that's what it took. At that point, she walked in, and she had the knowledge that police were on the way. Right. And they, I assume at this point, are ex I expect for domestic violence, the the natural reaction or expectation is the husband is the, the stronger, more muscular husband is attacking the wife, and that's mm -hmm. what she had reported. So when the police came to the door, what happened? Well, initially she had calmed down by the time they got there quite a bit, and uh, they probably came I think 20 minutes or so after the call. But she uh, went to the door, and something that we've always talked about before is not to, uh, she had an experience prior to this where she was pulled over on the highway years ago when she was in college. 
and the police had actually said she had a suspicious-looking vehicle, pulled her out of her car in the rain, had her stand on the side of the road while they searched her car. So she had a bad experience. Yes. So that was playing into this? Yes, and I told her before that, you know, you don't have to do that. You know, you have Fourth Amendment rights, and, you know, while most police officers are good, upstanding people, you know, they, you don't have to allow them to search. You don't have to allow them. If they ever do that again, your response is, I'm sorry, I have a Fourth Amendment right. You know, unless you have some cause <laughs> better than I have a suspicious-looking VW Jetta, <laughs> you know, it's mm -hmm. not, you're not searching my vehicle. What does that Fourth Amendment say? It specifically says that, well, one of the elements of the Fourth Amendment is that, you know, you have, they have to have a warrant. They have to have probable cause. They have to have, it has to be based. They have to have, you know, they have to go to a judge, essentially, get a, obtain a warrant stating where a judge looks at it and says you have probable cause to search this, citing specifically the things, you know, to be searched, the places to be searched, and the things to be seized. That's what the Fourth Amendment says. So, so it protects from uh, unlawful search and seizure. Absolutely. This, oh, what's the word? <laughs> yeah, it does. It, uh, unlawful search and seizure. Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it, it is something our founding fathers knew because but prior to the United States coming into existence, of course, mm -hmm. you know, the official came and they did whatever they wanted. They rifled through your papers. They searched your home. They, and our founders knew that that, you know, that isn't the right way we should be proceeding, that sure. citizens should be in charge of their government, not government in charge of their citizens. So all that extra baggage adds a little bit mm -hmm. more. So when she opened the door and police were there, uh, how did that play into this? Well, she told them to wait outside. She said that, you know, I don't want you inside the house. I'll talk to you outside. Because we had discussed how they don't come inside the house. They don't come inside your car. You can talk to them. You control the situation. They're not dictating to you. You're, you know, in control. And uh, so she had told them to stay on the, the front door, and she would talk. Yeah, the that, front porch, I take it. We do have they're a front not, porch. They're not, they're not the out in the rain. It was a nice night. Yeah, it was um, a little bit wet, but it was, yeah, they're covered. It wasn't a bad situation to be in. Um, I actually walked to the front of the house at that point, too. They pushed her out of the way, came inside the house, and I told them the same thing. I said, I'll be happy to talk to you guys, but let's talk on the front porch. We want you out of the house. Uh, they ignored me, so I said, okay, we have a Fourth Amendment. <laughs> and I began discussing the Fourth Amendment. And, uh, and they essentially ignored me anyway, searched me, told me that it was for my own safety that they were coming inside my house and searching me. And, uh, and then after they had completed their search, they took me outside and stayed. One of the police officers stayed with my wife, the actual deputy sheriff. So they searched they you for weapons? They just searched me for weapons. Okay. They didn't search her. And you felt like at that point it sounds like your, your constitutional rights were, being, rights were being violated. Absolutely. Did that upset you? It did. It did. And I knew that that's something I would deal with later. And I told them, you know, this is, you know, I didn't act, you know, aggressive about it, but I let them know that I understand that my rights are being violated. They said under community caretaking laws that they were allowed to go inside a home. Well, those people that, if you know the history of community caretaking, it initially happened because there was a police officer that showed up at someone's house, and the door was ajar, and it was an elderly woman who lived alone, and they were worried about her health and safety. So they were saying, well, we don't want to have to get a warrant to go in to help the elderly woman that we know is inside this home, that you know, she could be hurt. So the judges in the past have said, okay, well, that's okay. In that situation, you can go in to try to help them because you have a reason to, you know, try to protect your community, and it's not something you're doing sure. to be malicious. So the police officers, they have to make a call. They have to make they a have, call. They, they have to decide what they're going to do in this situation because the call they received that, that this woman was in distress, she's being attacked, and they needed to be able to step in and Right. Help. But the situation here was different, and it was different because both of us were at the front door, both clearly not injured, both clearly saying, step outside and we'll have a discussion with you. So it, it creates a different scenario. So they had violated the Fourth Amendment, and I made them known that I understood my Fourth Amendment rights, and I knew that they had violated it. And uh, at that point, the deputy talked to my wife and the two Camas police officers. Who, there were three total cops. Uh, deputy was inside with my wife. The Camas cops were outside. And I talked to the Camas cops for a little bit. They tried doing the cop routine 
with me, um, which is typical where they try to get you know information and, and do the cop thing, and I explain to them, you know, I have Fifth Amendment right as well, and my Fifth Amendment right is to remain silent, and and the reason I'm remaining silent is I basically told them, I said, look, guys, you know, I don't dislike you. My dad was a cop, so I know exactly what you're doing. I grew up in a cop house. <laughs> we went to the POB lodge, you know, every other weekend at Pig Roast with all the other cops. Um, this is the environment I grew up in. I know exactly what you're doing and how you're doing it. I said, but here's the situation. You know, I have a Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. I am a public figure. If I say anything, it goes in your police report. Your police report tomorrow will be in the paper. <laughs> so I, at this point in time, you know, because I don't, you know, I, I want to, uh, essentially I didn't want to, uh, say what my wife had done publicly, and I was hoping that all of that wouldn't have to come out. And I didn't want to, of course, as a husband, I don't want to embarrass her, and I don't want to have to, you know, talk about these kind of things. Um, so I said, I'm because, you know, of that, I'm ex exercising my Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. Were you still running for Congress at that point, or was this no, after that? this was after that. But I knew that, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm going to work in politics in some capacity just because, you know, this is what I, you know, I, I love. I'm, I'm passionate about the Constitution. I'm passionate about none of those things during the campaign were fake. Like, those are my actual beliefs. And it's not something that I'm going to stop doing in some capacity. And I understood that, you know, if, you know, it, it can be uh, not just on me, but because I'm going to be in the public eye, you know, that kind of thing about my wife would become news and that would be broadcast. And, you know, I didn't feel like her friends and coworkers and everyone else, you know, needed to have every detail of a household so argument. So you still have to have, it's difficult to balance privacy mm -hmm. and still run for a public office or have a future where you're interested in running for a public office. So the officers at this point, it doesn't, I wouldn't expect that they're going to be very favorable to you at this point. They still have to make calls. They're still thinking this woman's being attacked. All they know is what they've said to her. You're being silent and you're basically standing up for your rights at this mm -hmm. point. So what do they do? Well, the deputy initially, arre he arrested me, and he said that the reason he was arresting me is because I asserted my Fifth Amendment rights, and he thought this made me suspicious. Well, you can't arrest people in this country for asserting their rights. That's not something you can do. And he actually, we did a, uh, dep we deposed him later. My attorney actually did an interview with him, and he essentially said the same thing, is that he admitted that he didn't like the fact that I asserted my rights. Citizens don't know their rights, according to him. And that made me very suspicious. For those people that don't know what deposed means. Right. Well, we asked him uh, to come in and to have an uh, interview on the record, a recorded interview with both my attorney and the prosecutor. Where, and at that interview, he admitted that that was the initial arrest was based on the fact that I asserted my Fifth Amendment rights and he thought that made me suspicious and he didn't like that. So. And do they have the, 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 I assume police officers need to make, make a call. They're constantly making decisions. Mm -hmm. What should I do in this situation? The, a, a, after that, after they arrested you, uh, did they feel like, oh, you know, we shouldn't have done that. That was really the wrong call. Well, or was that just the best call at the time that they could, you, it's always incomplete information. Mm -hmm. Well, I found out later a little bit more information they kind of gave me. Uh, the Camus cops, I think they were kind of looking at each other. Just the vibe I got was kind of, they were thinking, well, this is kind of, you know, a strange case because he obviously is the calm one. He didn't attack anyone. There's no marks. I think they were kind of running it through their minds, just looking at them uh, and noticing the looks they were giving each other. It was kind of like this guy obviously isn't doing anything wrong. He probably didn't. This is why you're at the police station? No, this is why we're still at the house. I'll see. So he had initially placed me under arrest, took me to his car. And uh, he basically asked me, you know, what's happened. And I, what I decided was the deputy did. I gave him, I said, well, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I said, you know, I'm going to basically give you a, a little bit of information 
and I'm not going to go into the whole thing, but now that I'm being arrested, obviously this is now public. You know, I'm not keeping any of these details private at this point um, so that, you know, protecting my wife's reputation essentially has been taken out of my hands. There's nothing I can do. And uh, so I said, you know, I'm going to go over, the, I gave him a few details, and I said, if he doesn't do the right thing with these details and release me, then at that point there's no hope. I, I mean, I could talk to the guy all night, and it's not going to matter. So I basically explained to him quickly that, you know, look, she had too much to drink. She got angry. She attacked me and tried to hit me with a chair. I restrained her, and that's the extent of it. That's the extent of what happened. She called 911. And so he said, okay, wait here. He wait, I waited outside. He went back in and talked to my wife. Um, essentially at this point, she had initially already started changing her story and trying to tone down what had actually happened, realizing, of course, the physical evidence didn't match. Nothing matched. And, uh, but at this point, she had told him. She said, look. Here's what, he, he's right. This is what happened. She showed him the chair she had swung. She said, I attacked him. He didn't do anything. Um, all he did was restrain me. And I was angry at him, and I made the whole thing up. Do you feel like she didn't, did not expect you to get arrested, she, and that was surprising to her? I think it was shocking. I think she, and she told me this later, she thought they would come, and they would basically yell at me. I, in her current state, <laughs> she was thinking that they would come and somehow lecture me about being mean to her, and they would leave. Do you feel like she had immediate regret that, oh, no, I didn't want this to happen, mm-hmm. and now she's trying to talk them out of, uh, out of this arrest so that you can come back into the home? Well, I think that she obviously didn't want me to leave, but at this point she was essentially, I mean, she was giving them the details of, okay, here's what happened. And she laid out the full story and said that, you know, she was angry, and she said that you should arrest me, and she actually told them that. She said I'm, she realized at that point, which seeing me going away, going to jail, when she was the one that had done the whole, essentially the entire thing, that, you know, something wrong was uh, was occurring and that she should have been the one, if anyone was taken out, it should have been her. And the reputation that got uh, damaged there was not hers, it was yours. It was mine. And it was what we read about in the paper, the Colombian, uh, didn't, <laughs> it was an entirely different story. Right. We're, we're at a break point, so we have to break, uh, wrap this second section of the video up. We'll start again in a minute. Welcome back. We're continuing the story here to, you. you are arrested, you're sitting in the back of a police car, mm-hmm. and the police, it was there one individual? How many police came? There were three total. Two were from Camas, and one was a Clark County deputy. Okay, and, they're, and so all three of them are on the front porch talking to your wife at this point? Uh, they're inside the house talking to her, okay. and I'm pretty much just sitting in the car waiting. And you're thinking about, oh, no, no. All right, I'm thinking, you know, this is great. <laughs> this is not, not how I thought I was going to spend the weekend. A public yes. uh, a person who wants to right. get elected to office. Yes, yes. So you, tried to, so you tried to protect the reputation of your wife. Right. And in, re- in reality, what turned out, uh, I remember reading that and I'm thinking, oh, and I believed in the guy. Mm-hmm. And like, oh, he, his political future is over mm-hmm. because this domestic guy, wife beater guy, is up right. beating up his wife at home. That's what I thought. That was the impression that was left. Mm-hmm. In reality, what's, this is not just a story about you and about what happened to you. This is really an eye-opening experience that there, for the community to be able to understand that when you have domestic violence, it's not always the husband beating up on the wife. Uh, in this case, this was uh, an entirely different story. So there's some insight that we can gain from this. Mm-hmm. And there is. And when he came out, actually, the, after he had spoken with my wife the second time, uh, he, he came outside and he said, look, you know, and he basically broke it down for me. He said, you know, here's how the situation works. He said, in Clark County, we have a policy. We must arrest on every single DV call. No if, ands, or buts about it. He said, I have domestic violence. Domestic violence, yes. He said, we have no discretion. We will make an arrest. He said, my only job here is to determine who the primary aggressor is and arrest that person. Oh. So, so this be a word of caution to uh, anyone who makes a call to 911 and says, reports a domestic violence mm-hmm. case. 
they're sending somebody to to, yes. to jail. They're they're going to be arrested. Someone's going so to jail. So they better think about that very carefully before they call. Absolutely. But there's a balance to that. You want to make sure you don't not call when it's appropriate. I mean, right. There really is a, a threat going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, well, he's talking to me, having this discussion. And what he said to me was, he said, uh, you know, I have to make that assessment. He said, with the information your wife has given me, I could arrest her. He said, but there are children in the home. And because there's children in the home, I'm choosing to label you the primary aggressor. So knowing full well that she actually attacked me, knowing that she admitted it, which never made its way into the police report, that admission, knowing that she had showed him the chair she swung, knowing that there was no marks on her, knowing that she had you know, admitted to everything that had transpired that night, uh, he still said, that because you're male, basically, I'm going to spare your wife and take you instead. How could that not make it into the police report? Don't they, aren't they, uh, the, the assumption is that they'll lay down the facts of what happened on this call, mm-hmm. and they went and they talked with your wife, got the story from her. That never made it into the report. report. How, how can that be? He uh, omitted it for some reason. He never really explained. At the deposition, when he was discussing it, he did admit that she had said it, but he admitted as well, of course, that it was didn't make its way into the police report somehow. And odds are it didn't meet the probable cause statement requirement that he had probable cause to assume that I was the one that committed the attack. And uh, so essentially he, he had the same discussion with my wife. He talked to her inside. And he told her the exact same thing. Here's what I'm doing. Here's why I have to take him. It's, you know, and she, expl- she said, wait a minute, you know, I attacked him. And she said, look, she said, there's kids in the house. He told her the same thing, and you should stay home with your children. My wife protested and said, but my husband is the one that takes care of the kids most of the time, because I am. I'm the one that actually provides more care to our children. And uh, he looked at her and said, well, mothers should stay home with their children. Is and that, that was the standard policy, or is that just an individual that, officer that trying to, at, individual. The, at the time, make a call? I believe that was just his personal opinion, and he was letting that influence what was going on. And it, prob- and it obviously shouldn't have. And when we got down to the jail, he actually uh, tried to console me, and he told me, he said, look, you know, there's no evidence that you did anything, so you're going to be released uh, by Monday morning. You know, this is, of course, is Friday night, early Saturday. He said, Monday morning you'll go in before the judge, and you'll be released, and this will be dropped right away. So they booked me. you into They booked cell. me into Clark County. Yep, they, you sit in a cell. It's not a, it's not a very nice cage. It's, not, it's very spartan. No clocks, nothing. You don't know anything. You don't talk to anyone. You don't have, of course, immediately there's an attorney. Um, it's basically you're not really given any information. You're just stuck in. Did they? I've never. I, I assume this is your first experience mm-hmm. behind bars. Mm-hmm. Did they take your clothes and put something else on you? Or? Yep. You wear the blue garb like you're a criminal, even though you've never been convicted of anything. You're not. You know, essentially, you're given no information and uh, you know just put in there. And you're. And most of them actually were quite kind. I found that down there, most of the guards and that kind of thing um, were pretty kind. There was a couple that weren't, but most of them were pretty relaxed. But essentially, you know, the situation, you really have no information or, or know what's going on for the most part. And uh, they decided, yeah, they decided to keep me there all the way till Monday. And then I didn't end up getting released until Monday at about 7.45. In the morning? That evening. That evening. In the evening. Yeah, so they, you sat in jail. For three days. For three days thinking about this. What was going through your head? Well, I did, uh, I did some writing <laughs> down at the time. And at first, you know, it, it, it was frustrating, you know, knowing that here I am. You did, I didn't do anything wrong. I was, you know... That night, I was trying to calm everything down. I was doing what they should, they should actually teach what I did in the domestic violence class, is what I was thinking. I was like, you know, I did all of the steps. I stepped away to let her cool down. You know, when I realized it was getting out of control, I was going to have a friend stay with her and take the kids and leave for the night. You know, I, I was doing all of the things down the list, check, you know, check mark. When she physically attacked, I restrained her, but I didn't use excessive force, and I released her as soon as she calmed down. You know, it's, it's basically, you know, this is what, you know, we should expect in that situation. 
but instead I'm sitting in jail. You are still you're you're still together with your wife now. Right. I mean the the so after you got out of jail, mm -hmm. you went home. Well, at first you can't. So what they do is they put. And I found this out. Uh, this is these are kind of the dirty little secrets of the way domestic violence works. Um, the, they get the case, and what they do is they put a no contact order almost every time in place where you can't talk to your wife. Uh, you can't talk to, in some cases, depending, you can't talk to your kids, members of your family. You can't go home to your house. You can't, uh, if you have a place of business that's at your home, you can't go there. So they make life extremely difficult. So we essentially were separated for over a month without even being able to communicate nothing. So in the meantime, you had a new phone. You did, your contacts were not in that new phone yet? You right. didn't have a computer. You didn't didn't have the password to the computer. Well, well, luckily she had changed the password to the computer, and she had arranged through the prosecution's office that she would leave the home, and I would take over the home because I had all my business stuff there, and she had relatives in town that she could stay with. So that's kind of what we did to make the thing work. But in a lot of cases, it doesn't work that easily. In a lot of cases, you know, I, I feel bad for the guys that don't have that situation where, you know, they're immediately taken away from their kids. Uh, and if you remember my ex that we talked about earlier, mm -hmm. she immediately exploited the opportunity, went into court and filed a restraining order preventing me from seeing my son because of the accusation. And uh, this is something that's also not talked about, is how a guy, as soon as you're accused, doesn't matter if there's evidence, doesn't matter anything, they can immediately go in and they will take your own kids from you while you go through the trial. And as they found out, of course, later, I was the victim <laughs> of the actual attack, but I was the one that's having my kids taken from me and everything else was associated with it simply because I was male. And, uh, and, and this is something that happens typically. Now, the prosecutor, if you realize in this case, uh, he knew all of this. None of this was new to him. None of it was he had, we had the depositions. We had the statement. My wife was deposed, and she came in and told him the whole thing, what she had done, why she had done it, uh, offered the phone records, offered the medical records to show the medication. She was uh, everything. He knew every single detail of it with no evidence whatsoever, and yet still proceeded all the way to trial. So your wife did not press charges? No. Nope. Uh, who, who's pressing charges? It was the uh, government, the county so, government. So if you have domestic violence, whatever, the government come in and they can press charges, yes. and that's what they did. That's exactly what they did. And you in the meantime, you're home alone. Right. She has, she's off at a hotel mm -hmm. with, with her children, mm -hmm. and you're not in, able to contact her during the, that time, for it's, the month. Right. So what typically happens, this happens a lot, and, and what will happen is the guys will plea, and they will simply say, I'll take the diversion, I'll pay the fine, and I will, you know, just to make it go away. What do you mean diversion? Diversion is, a, is offered to you generally by the prosecution's office. And it's a, it's a class, basically, you pay a fine, you agree that you're, uh, you won't get found guilty and it doesn't go on your official record, but you're on probation. I believe it's some kind of probation for a year. And you have to take a series of classes that you pay for that is offered through some kind of either state or local program. So it's some admission of guilt to a lesser degree. Essentially. It's still in a position, you had just run for office, you're mm -hmm. still hoping to run for office, and still that's something that doesn't look very good. Some admission of guilt that, yeah, this was, you know, I had my part in this, I, you know. Right. Was right. violent toward my wife. Yeah, and that's how it would be seen, and that's essentially, you know, what the perception would be, and, uh, and it's, and... You so know. you didn't do that? Oh, absolutely not. And in most cases, guys do because, you know, you have to realize you're pulled from your – most cases, they're pulled from their home. Sometimes they can't do business. Sometimes they can't. It's easier to take the, the diversion punishment and to make it, all the rest of it go away. And what happens is the more of this – and there's federal programs that actually give funding to local governments by the, if they increase the diversion rate because they're giving counseling for domestic violence. 
And so many, so this is kind of a racket that's being run. We're paying taxes to the federal government, which is then giving money to a lot of the local community groups if they increase the rate of people going to diversion. They actually handed, I wasn't even out of jail before I got the diversion offer, essentially a plea deal from the prosecutor. That's how quick it happens. It's, it was that fast. It was, I was just handed it. So it's a form of plea bargaining? It's essentially a kind of plea bargaining. Um, and I don't know officially, I'm not a lawyer, <laughs> if they would refer to it that way, but effectively that's what it is. You're, you're agreeing to take a deal to take these diversion classes, pay the fine, stay clean for a year and not do anything wrong, and then they basically, it doesn't go on your criminal record, doesn't go anywhere, it disappears from that point forward. And what, what were the charges? On mine it was domestic violence four, which is the lowest level one they can give you. It was essentially assault four, I believe is what they called it. And, uh, and, and once they realized, you know, once they had got all this information, in most cases when they said, okay, the guy's not taking the diversion, and we have no evidence whatsoever, they would have dropped it. Now, you remember in my case, like I said, you know, every piece of evidence showed from the phone records to the stuff that's destroyed at the house to the, uh, down to, you know, the medical reports and the, who was drinking and who wasn't and, you know, everything showed that I was the victim in this case. And yet still with no evidence, not one piece of actual evidence, nothing, they took it all the way to trial in my case. Now, um, whether or not that was politically motivated, I think we can all assume pretty well that, you know, there's a young Tea Party guy and some people don't like him and they don't like that he says what he thinks and that he's actually honest on stage and maybe this is a way to finally shut him up, even though they know full well that he's the victim of this crime. And it was proceeded all the way through that trial without, and literally it was, it was interesting at trial because we didn't, our defense consisted of three words, the defense rests. We literally had nothing to defend against because they hadn't put one shred of evidence forward. We couldn't do it. There was nothing to do. So that was our entire defense, and the case was over right there. Uh, most of the jurors were rolling their eyes or looking at the prosecutor like, are you crazy? <laughs> are we really here? You know, you didn't put one shred of evidence forward that this guy had done anything. Was your wife interviewed uh, on the stand during she that time? She was, and she told the whole story exactly how it happened. So during, during that time, she was defending you? Absolutely, Yes. And they just, so they didn't have a, you know, a witness that was going to say what they wanted, essentially. Um, they had one that was saying the same story that she had told at the end of the first night when she had admitted exactly what had really happened and what had transpired. That was backed up. We didn't even bother putting in all of our evidence, even putting the phone record in. We didn't do any of that because we didn't have to. That's how simple it was. And uh, the jury had 15 pages of instructions to read. I believe it was 15. And in less than 30 minutes, they had read through, analyzed the 15 pages of instructions, and come back with a unanimous verdict. So Which it was... was was not guilty. So that, that's how simple it was. And could you then go, uh, you and your wife uh, could be in contact again, you could go back home, mm -hmm. and you did? Well, we, we did. And we had it released. We had the, the no contact actually was rescinded about halfway through. It was released earlier in the process. You can go back before the judge and request it. And the judge can remove it or not remove it. In, this, in our case, he did. Um, he chose to. In some cases, he doesn't. And, you know, which is another way that a lot of people end up getting convictions on these things, even if they haven't committed domestic violence, is because what will happen is they'll put a no contact in place, you get caught violating it, and now you're going to have to plea because they have you on something else. And that's, that happens all of the time. So that's used as a weapon. Um, mm -hmm. it's, uh, and also, you know, the, the statistics on this. Since this happened to me, I began looking at statistics. And what I quickly found was that in cases of domestic violence, Actually, most of the research, this is California State uh, research, this is big colleges, over uh, 500 studies of empirical peer-reviewed studies showed that males are actually the victim equal to females, if not the majority of the time domestic violence occurs. It's actually, unlike what we see on Lifetime movies and in Clark County courts, males are actually victims of domestic violence more often than their perpetrators. Which is something you don't normally read about in the paper. You don't. We're, we're at a break point. We need to be able to break now.
and we'll start in again in a, in a minute. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with uh, David Hedrick. So, David, you were talking about the uh, husband mm -hmm. being a victim uh, half of the time in domestic violence, and that was certainly your case. Uh, one thing I'm curious about, again, you're trying to, you don't want to have this destroy your political uh, aspirations for your future, mm -hmm. but at that point, uh, the Colombian had already placed it all, uh, plastered, <laughs> plastered all over the front page, this big article uh, that was essentially ending your career, it appeared. Mm -hmm. uh, when did that article come out? I mean, you had that the time you were arrested, and uh, in fact, there was more than an article, one article. There, there was multiple, multiple right. articles, each one of them being not so mm -hmm. flattering. And, and they did. I mean, they and, and they took all the cheap shots they could, and that's the best way you know I can refer to it. Is you know the liberal media did what the liberal media does, and you know it wasn't just the Colombian. I mean, they did it all over the place. I mean, this was covered you know nationally. The Huffington Post had stuff on it, and you know it was it was featured you know even in CNN and Time and Fox News picked up part of it, and uh, you know but mostly you know the Colombian I think kind of led a lot of the writing because they're local. Uh, so a lot of people kind of picked their article and used it. They used it for the Centralia Chronicle, for example. I believe they were using most of the Colombian stuff. Uh, but, you know, it was, it was essentially a lot of them were attack pieces, and they were cheap shots, and they knew in court that you can't defend yourself and that essentially you have an attorney speaking for you. So they used that against me. They would, you know, look, he has nothing to say now. You know, so it was like very cheap shots that they understood, you know, in that situation. It's not, you know, my turn to speak. It's the judge speaks, the attorney speaks. Um, sure. And that's, you know, so they would take anything like that they could, spin it against me, and try to uh, do everything they could in their power to, to destroy, you know, what they saw as a young Tea Party guy. I can imagine a Tea Party representing the, the right side of the political mm -hmm. spectrum and John Laird, who, who heads up their, I guess, a very vocal uh, uh, editorialist mm -hmm. from the Colombian, has made the Colombian's stance very politically left uh, <laughs> motivated, right? And so, the, at this point, they were in, the, in a position to do whatever they can to end your political aspirations. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I, I can understand the motivation there, mm -hmm. but they also have the just to report the news. How, were they really just reporting the news? I don't want to be unfairly biased against the Colombian because mm -hmm. this is this is news. Right. And maybe all they had was the police report. And were they following the trial or? You know, they, they did follow to some degree, but there was you could tell when you read it. Like I could afterwards, you know, I pick it up and see what they said. And uh, in some of the things they wrote, it was pretty clear that this was you know they were cheap shots, and it was the. Sure. And you could see that in the writing, it was basically they were they were attacks. And the final one was more fair, you know, when it was all done. Of course, it wasn't huge on the front page. It was a little, you know, clip on the front page, but uh, but the final one was more fair. There was one piece in it, you know, where they where they did refer to my recently amicable relationship with my ex-wife, and that kind of I think made some suggestion that wasn't there. You know, this is about a phone call <laughs> where we're disagreeing on parenting. Sure, it's not a yeah, we're not hanging out or something. Uh, so I think that that suggestion was kind of there. I don't know if that was intentional or not. But other than that, the final one was fair. But leading up to that, yeah, it was essentially attack after attack, and uh, they, you know, thought they'd have an opportunity here. So that being, <laughs> at that point, it, it was good that you weren't still running for office because it would have been academic at that point anyway. You came home. You and your wife were back together, mm -hmm. and you were getting along fine, uh, which is, 
Is, is that the case? Yeah, we're getting along fine. And we're doing all the typical things, you know, that you should do in this situation. And I talked to my wife. We're not going to go into full details about everything, you know, that's, that we're doing. But we are, you know, doing counseling and those kind of things. They're all, they are occurring. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's something that we both did on our own. It's not something that, you know, it, of course, that was government regulated. And in this situation, you know, we, we looked at it and we said, you know, what, what should have happened is if anyone was arrested in that situation, and it's arguable whether someone should or shouldn't be in those kind of situations, but, you know, if, if someone was, it should have been her. Mm-hmm. She committed the attack. She did it. And at anything, you know, when they, uh, when they realized that I was the victim, this is something they should have dropped and said, you know, then at that point they would have to make a decision. Do we go after the actual perpetrator or do we, you know, uh, or do we just drop the whole thing? Unfortunately, they didn't do that and the entire time. And if she had been the one that they took, she probably would have taken the diversion. She probably would have gotten the counseling that they offered. She probably would have done all those things. But because they arrested the victim, not only did they waste all of this money, all of his resources, and you know, going after the person they knew the whole time didn't do anything, but they stopped us from having someone who had perpetrated something getting the help that they may have needed, which is why those resources are supposed to be there in the first place. And she wasn't given those. And, and I think that's a tragedy. I think it's something that, you know, it shouldn't have happened. And, you know, they really need to rethink, you know, the way when you look at the DV court and you see it's just guy after guy after guy after guy that's coming up before domestic violence. And if this is something where it's roughly 50-50 in our society in terms of who the perpetrator is, how is that possible? And we need to really start analyzing this and say that, you know, the guy in my, in my situation, I can defend myself, of course. And, uh, and it's not that I was the victim because I can't defend myself. I was the victim because I was choosing, you know, not to defend myself until I had to in the end. It was that, you know, as a guy, you know, you, it's not a weak thing that you're saying. And I think that's one of the reasons a lot of guys don't come forward is they look at it that way. Mm-hmm. It's an admission of some kind of weakness. And it really isn't. It's, you know, it, it, uh, um, we, can't, we can't look at it that way as society. You know, the guy is, if he's attacked, you know, he's being attacked just like a female being attacked. And just because he doesn't necessarily fight back doesn't make him less of a victim. Well, you've been, we're getting one side of the story here. We're getting, we're getting your point of view. Uh, there are people that will view this and think, well, that's what he says. Where, mm-hmm. where is she? Well, what about her story? Like you, you've said things that she's been, she was drinking, she became violent. No. How does she feel about you having this interview and telling this, just laying this all out and say, mm-hmm. she did this? Mm-hmm. Uh, are you, is that okay with her? Well, she, and it is. And the reason, the reason it became okay with her is, you know, we had an experience outside the courtroom one day. And, uh, she essentially what had happened is someone came running outside the courtroom chasing me and i was thinking okay who is this and uh, she ran down the steps and i thought maybe it's the media or something like that i was about to you know just leave and the woman ran up to me crying and hugged me and i was like okay you know this doesn't happen every day (laughs) you don't know this person i have never seen her before in my life and it turns out that her husband was being charged with domestic violence and a very similar situation had occurred and you know she was attacking him he basically pushed her off of him and ran out straight out the door to leave when he was getting physically attacked. She then called the police and said he pushed her, because he did, to push her off of him. <laughs> and he was then charged with domestic violence, kept from his home. His business was at home, so their business was being destroyed because they couldn't get together. Um, there was all kinds of consequences that were coming out of it. And, you know, she was crying, bawling her eyes out, thanking me for fighting back because everyone else was caving because the, the county, you know, it's powerful when they come after you like that. You know, you have government coming after you, and you simply plea and you simply get out of it. And she was glad that someone was standing up to him saying, no, I'm not taking the diversion. I'm not admitting I did something I didn't do. I'm going to fight back. So she came out to you. She was just, <laughs> she actually hugged you. She did. And explained this story 
to yep. you. Absolutely. Thinking that now was, was that was her husband still being prosecuted at that time? He or was. was he was actually in, and I hadn't seen him. I don't even know what he looks like today. But he was inside. Apparently, he was inside the courtroom, and he was taking his working on the plea deal that he was going to take, even though he had done absolutely nothing wrong. Huh. And it was abs- it was destroying them as a family. So it, it was looking like that was going the wrong way. It was. So the it was. It's a little surprising to some people, I think, to understand that it's not just one person charging another person. Anytime there's domestic violence, the state or whoever the, the county, whoever. Uh, the authorities will charge, even if it's backwards from the person that was being attacked. Right, and it is, and it's it is devastating. I mean, even when you're found, I mean, you look at my case. There's the consequences of it. Uh, it's you know they come after you, and you have to pay for your own attorney, which you know can cost it can cost tens of thousands of dollars by the time it's over with, and you're paying for an attorney. That's only if it's there. If you have a divorce, you're going to be paying for an attorney now in family court to to fight against what if the other person's trying to take your children. You were, you know, in my case, you know, the business was definitely, this did huge damage to my business. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was, like I said, it was reported everywhere from Fox News to, to, to you know, everywhere. And I was, uh, I had to cancel a book tour because of it, because this was just on every single pamphlet that had my book that I had just written and spent mm-hmm. all this time working on. It also said, by the way, he's charged with domestic violence. And, you know, so this is something that it, it completely was devastating. I've had a radio job that I was supposed to get, that I was told flat out by the person making the radio uh, job, I was going to do a conservative talk show, that this is the reason I was stopped, is because of this. Now you think about that, I'm the victim of this, they do all of this to you, and they can absolutely just destroy everything you're doing, and it's all based on something that's not even true. And unfortunately, those headlines, that, uh, the, the sensationalism of David Hedrick, this public mm-hmm. figure gets charged and, lo- and basically makes it look like you are this violent guy that we thought we knew in, and look at this. How in the world can you lead a community or a nation mm-hmm. if, you're, if this is who you are? So that, and, they, and then when you're acquitted, you don't get big headlines again that says, David Hedrick, wrongly accused, acquitted, his wife was defending him. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the story. You don't get those headlines. You might get a little blurb mm-hmm. that many people no longer see because... It just doesn't get the profile. Right. And once the accusation's out there, it's out there. I mean, this is one of the, those things where people always look at you kind of like, well, maybe, you know, he was somehow guilty. You know, it's kind of, I think a lot of people have that tendency, especially in these situations, um, after seeing all the Lifetime movies and all the things, you know, you think, you know, maybe she's really just protecting him. And, and when you look at the evidence in my case, though, that kind of goes out the window pretty quick because we have enough of it that it shows that that can't be the case. But, mm-hmm. but in a lot of cases, you don't have that evidence. You don't have the phone records, or you don't have the. So that was about a year ago now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the year, well. Well, it was some, o- October. Uh, okay, so, so months ago, mm-hmm. many months ago. You're, you and your wife are getting along fine? We are. And yes. you're, uh, she's been receiving some help, some counseling? Yeah, absolutely. You still love your wife? Absolutely. Yes. And the situation with your ex wife, is that still strained? It's still, yeah, it's strange. She went, because of the direction she went with trying to keep me from my son, of course, that made it more strained mm-hmm. than it's been before. And it actually got worse for a while. You still um, have part-time. Uh, you're still sharing time. Bet- for we're y- still with sharing your son. time. Yeah, and I've got, I've reclaimed most of my time, but it took a while uh-huh. to get the time back that was taken from me. You know, to try to get back on the regular schedule. You know, it, it was a fight, and I had to battle for it every inch of it. And even though I was shown to be not guilty, that's something. You know, as a father, you're still on the outside, essentially, a lot of times at family court. Still, there are negative consequences anytime you have domestic violence. It just mm-hmm. It, everybody loses. You still feel like you you can 
be involved in the community, feel like you still have a political future, that people can understand uh, this situation and maybe learn, uh, gain some insight they didn't have? Well, yeah, and, and I think that, you know, one of the things I'm doing by coming out here, and this is what my wife and I had talked about, was that you know, we have to tell the story. And you know, this is part of me still being involved in the community, is saying that you know, this happened, and maybe we can all learn something from it. And you may not look at you know, a domestic violence situation the same as you did before, that mm -hmm. you realize you know, not that it doesn't happen, because it does happen. And when it does happen, you know, we need to step in and stop, you know, protect the victim and do the right thing. But it's not always as clear cut as it seems from the outside as soon as you get that report. And you know, if we need to reexamine the way we do things, and if we're you know arresting citizens because the primary aggressor, uh, you know, thing where we're saying, well, he's male, therefore he must be the primary aggressor, no matter what the evidence says, you know, that's a problem, and that's not a way a free society operates. And you know, we can't uh, we can't behave that way in Clark County, and we need prosecutors that understand and have moral conviction that will say, you know, this is wrong, and I don't care about the political pressure. I don't care that this is the most you know popular case in the DV unit, and everyone wants to know what's going on with it. I don't care about that. You know, I, I have to stand up as a prosecutor and say that, you know, I took an oath and I need to do the right thing. I need to abide by the professional, you know, standards of conduct mm -hmm. in my community where I can't go after victims if I know they're victims just because politically it's popular. Mm -hmm. um, and then that kind of thing is something that we need to change. And I hope that, you know, by bringing this out, and my wife, we talked about it a lot. She's not a public person. She doesn't want to go on TV a lot. She's, if you've noticed during the campaign, she was always off stage, and we always kept her in the background. She has her own career, and she doesn't want her face plastered in the Colombian mm -hmm. on the front page. I do it as a, con it's just something, it has to be part of what I do. I can't do it without going in front of cameras. Mm -hmm. And, but, yeah, we've tried to keep our family life as private as possible, and she wants to stay private and keep our family life sure. as private going forward. Sure. So you still have friends. You, she still has her best friend that, mm -hmm. uh, at the time, you tried to get them together. Mm -hmm. So they're still best friends. Absolutely. Yep. They've been best friends for years. Okay. <laughs> so. And you're you're still hoping to be involved in the in the future. You still are you still actively involved with uh, the Tea Party and still hope to participate in our civil mm -hmm. uh, civic affairs. Well, I am the Tea Party, so <laughs> <laughs> I have to be involved in it. <laughs> you're yeah, in the Tea Party. Yes, okay. yes, yes. We're all the Tea Party. All of okay. us that are in it. So yeah, it's something that I definitely believe in. It. That's my belief. That's my conviction. Um, I want to return our nation back to the constitutional foundings that we started at, you know, back to that position. Okay. And I, you know, when that's, that's a great life goal to have is to make my children more free than I was when I was born into this country. That's very good. We can, we can wrap it here or we can take one more second. We can talk about sure. your convictions for uh, how to make this country better. Uh, we can do that. That's All fine. Right. And we'll wrap up this, this section and, and we'll uh, come back in a minute if you want to hear about uh, how David would like, what he would like to change for the future. We can make it done. <laughs> okay, thanks. Welcome back. To Clark County today, we're continuing a story with David Hedrick. We just went through the, the uh, all the domestic violence walk that you went through, and now we want to find out. Well, David, you still care about this country, you still care about the, this community, and maybe you can share a little bit about uh, your some of your convictions. Sure. Well, I believe in the Constitution. I believe in uh, the the founding of our nation. I think our founders were onto something, and they decided for the first time in human history that you know, governments don't dictate to their people, people dictate to their government. And I think that's an amazing thing. It's something, unfortunately, as a nation, we've been moving away from. We've yes. been moving towards much more centralized government that tells us you know, everything from when we, in some communities, when we can run our lawn sprinklers, to you know, how we're gonna you know, raise our own kids in our own home. And you know, when you look at these restrictions and things government's doing, telling us what to eat and, and everything else, where they're essentially turning into nanny-controlled government. And that's not what our founders envisioned. They envisioned citizens that control their own lives, that control their own families, and they tell the government what to do rather than that, you know, the direction that it had always been before. Yes, 
and the Tea Party is very much about teaching the Constitution, mm -hmm. teaching the principles behind the Constitution. The amendments to the Constitution, were they meant to restrain what states or people can do or meant to restrain what federal government can do? It, they were meant to control the federal government. And I think the Tenth Amendment is quite clear. You know, the, the Tenth Amendment talks about essentially that all powers not granted to the federal government are given to the states or to the people. And it's very clear that that's where the power of the nation resides. It was intended to be a limit on federal power. It wasn't intended to be any kind of limit on individual things. And the founders weren't even saying that all rights are contained in the Constitution, and, uh, or I should say the Bill of Rights. And some of the founding fathers were actually quite concerned when they made the Bill of Rights. And they worried that someday someone was going to say, those are your rights and that's it. That's all the rights you have. And they didn't even want a Bill of Rights because of that, because they didn't want that suggestion made. But I think that they were quite clear, the founders in all their writings, saying that, no, these aren't all of your rights. Your rights are given from God. You have the right to be free. And that includes a lot of things. And, you know, this is just saying that we're recognizing some of these exist, and we're recognizing, they're officially recognizing their existence, and saying federal government cannot touch them. But it's not putting any limit on them. The founders, if they had a greatest fear, what would it be? I think the greatest fear is that government would control the people. And, uh, you know, you look at George Washington, and this is, you know, he's an amazing guy. And you think about every person throughout history that had a position of power took over, and they became all powerful. You know, Napoleon hated emperors until he called himself Emperor Napoleon. And this had happened over and over again throughout history, where, you know, a dictator would come in, say he was going to help the people, and end up making himself, you know, what he truly was the whole time, which was a dictator. And, you know, for the first time in history, a man who could have taken over, could have become a king, had an army behind him, an unhappy mm -hmm. army who hadn't been paid behind him, and he walked away from power. And I think that's what our founders wanted for us, and they were worried that someone would, at some point, would do the opposite. Someone would say that, no, I want power over my neighbor. I want to control people. I want to dictate to people because I am, you know, like every leader before me, you know, know what's be I know what's best. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that's, that that was their huge concern. And we need to follow Washington's example. And when you have elected leaders, they need to follow that example, where they step in and they do what they can, and then they step away. So even though George Washington was a was a fabulous leader, mm -hmm. and it would have been good for the country for him to continue to serve as first president, still he was being pressured at the time to stay in office, stay in office, mm -hmm. actually become like an emperor, become like a king. And he, he absolutely did not want to have anything to do with that. Is that right? Nope. He chose to go home for the first time. Now, there's a story about the Greeks. I don't remember the name of the Greek. But we think it's largely a myth of someone that had done this in the past. And that's how remarkable this is, is we don't even know if it's a true story <laughs> when there's a report of this actually happening before. It was an incredibly, it's an American story. We're the first ones that actually did that and made it work. And, you know, it was the idea of liberty, the idea of, you know, this enlightenment that came into play where we recognize that, you know, individuals are sovereign over their own lives and that it's not up to government to tell them how to live their lives. So that was novel back then. It was absolutely novel. It was brave. I mean, it was something that hadn't been tried before, and I'm sure that a lot of people told them, you're absolutely crazy, this can't work. And yet it made us the most prosperous nation in the history of the world. It, it is quite amazing how the United States has grown and prospered since then. That in those principles had great blessings that that in the constitution is so simple it's so short it's so specific it, it just restrains federal government mm -hmm. how faithfully have we stayed true to that constitution over the years is there if you look at what we're doing now uh how are we doing we're not we're <laughs> we're way off of what the constitution you know what what it means and uh, when did that happen when did we branch away from 
their boots. It, it's been happening for a while, but it started it started largely in the progressive era, the 1930s, uh, when we had a lot of the progressive, you know, the, the New Deal type stuff. I call it the bum deal. You know, it, it's really kind of where we got into this mentality of government takes care of the citizens instead of citizens taking care of themselves. So the progressive era, okay, is, yes. that, is that the definition of it? That's what I, now I think there's, you know, I've heard it called that. I don't know if there's official <laughs> definition for it. But, mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of, you know, I, I look at the progressives really starting to take over where they turn the tide in the 1930s. And, you know, with the Reagan revolution, we had some turn back, you know, where we've, you know, fought against them. But they've steadily been increasing government power, increasing federal authority, uh, increasing taxes, increasing federal debt. Um, you know, these things have been constant throughout time. If you, you know, if you plot it, we've had some pullbacks, but it's going to go straight up. And, you know, we're seeing that government is controlling us rather than us controlling government. And, you know, now they laugh at the Constitution. I mean, you look at Nancy Pelosi and some of the uh, elected leaders of Congress where they've been interviewed and they've, you know, they've acted like it's a joke. Like, you really expect us to abide by that? Well, mm. you swore an oath. When you took office and you raised your right hand, you put one hand on a Bible and you said, I, you know, you're swearing before God and before all the citizens in this country that you're going to abide by that Constitution and that to your best, you're going to execute, you know, the laws that reflect the values and, and what that Constitution means. Well, progressives, that sounds like that's a good word. Sounds like I want progress. We'll make, you know, we'll just progress into the future. Sounds really good. <laughs> but what you can't, you can't look by the book of the, the, the cover on the book. You need to be able to figure out what it really means. So is the living constitution, what does that mean to you? Well, the living constitution is for people that don't believe in a constitution. And that's essentially what it is. Um, our, our founding fathers, the reason they put it in writing is because they didn't want a living constitution. And, you know, if the living constitution made the federal government all powerful, they could have just wrote the federal government's all powerful and went home. And they wouldn't have had to stay, you know, in the hot and the heat and deal with the bugs and everything else they had to deal with when writing it. They could have just simply went back to their farms. And, and, you know, but they stayed there and they wrote that document and they went through all the pains of restricting the power of the federal government with the intent of having something that was set, something that was solid, something that future generations, you know, it, 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 they couldn't just corrupt it and say, well, it really meant this. This is what they really wanted. They wanted to say, no, this is what we meant. So it was straightforward enough. It meant what it said and it said what it meant and, and it's supposed to speak for itself and you don't have to interpolate it uh, to make it mm-hmm. say something else. That's what they it wanted. Mean something else. That's the best way, and, and you know, I believe it was Thomas Jefferson that said, bind them down with the chains of the Constitution. And he understood that that's what it was. It was chains on the federal government. That's what it's supposed to be. And chains aren't living and breathing. They're going to hold you in place, and that's the idea. And that's exactly what the founders wanted, and that's exactly what we need to move back towards. And people that talk about living and breathing, well, okay, well, then your rights are living and breathing too. And for those of you progressives that like it, well, your, living, your right to free speech, I can say, is living and breathing. And maybe I don't like what you said over here. So maybe we can curtail that. You know, I don't think they would like it if we turn the tables like that. And that's what they have to understand, mm-hmm. is as soon as you open the Constitution up to being living and breathing, well, then I can say it's whatever I want, too. And you might not like the result. And our founders understood that well. And they said that we need to have a fair system where people are free. And freedom is our goal. Liberty is where we're going. And then people can flourish and people can make their own decisions, but this is going to be our bedrock is the Constitution. Return to it. Go back to this. It's a gift, you know, it's a gift from God, I think. When you look at the document and you look at how they came together and all the odds that were against them, I mean, this was, you know, it's a miracle that this happened. And all of these people put together at that perfect moment in time to create this system of government that could sustain us as the greatest nation the world's ever seen. And if we turn away from that, that we were given, it's a tragedy. It reminds me that we have to be, we have to be very careful about 
these nice-sounding terms, living document, sounds it's alive, it's good, it, and that sounds really good. But it's a, it's it's a substitute that really means something else. It's living document gives them license to make it say whatever they want it to say, instead of being bound down like chains that says you have to do this. It restrains you, not the other way around. Just today we had the credit rating for the United States. Uh, it looks like it's being reduced because of the massive debt and the government trying to do so much that has broken loose from the those bound those those chains that bind trying to do everything mm-hmm. and it <laughs> we are you know, I wonder where are we going are we how close are we to being insolvent how close are we to a major financial crisis and i think we're a lot closer than most people think and this is something, you know, it's not pretty to say, and you're supposed to sound optimistic about a lot of things. I know people like you know, to hear optimism, but in the financial situation, you know, our nation, we're in trouble. And, you know, financially, the amount of money we've been spending, it's impossible to sustain. And our credit rating should have been lowered a long time ago because it's, it's you know, the credit rating at some point is losing any credibility whatsoever because we know it can't be true. We don't have the best credit as a nation, and we don't have it because our debts are so out of control that at our current rate of spending, we will never be able to pay them down. We have to stop the spending because financially, the only other alternative is to print money. Well, if you print money, you know, economics is boring, I know, <laughs> but that will cause inflation. It will cause everything you buy, you know, a loaf of bread will be $10, and it won't seem as boring then when you have to look at the idea of inflation and what that does. The Weimar Republic tried it in Germany. We see what happened. They were pushing around wheelbarrows of money to buy stuff. I mean, it became ridiculous. They were bleaching money to write on this notepaper because it was cheaper than buying notepaper. It's, you know, you can't just inflate a currency indefinitely. Even if you're the reserve currency of the world, there's a breaking point. And we're approaching that. And that's something we have to look at. We better get our fiscal house in order because we've got trouble down the road if we don't. So if we're not balancing the budget, federal budget each year, that money's being made up somewhere. Is that being made up by printing more money? It is. Right now, that's what we've been doing. And, you know, it's, they say, you know, it's the last refuge of failed republics is just to print money. And it has never worked in human history. Every single time it's been done, the currency has eventually collapsed or been destroyed. It's, you can't indefinitely just print money out of nothing and just continue on because people eventually realize that the money isn't worth anything because you're simply just printing it and you know, making more of it. Well, that doesn't increase the value of anything. You still have the same amount of goods in the country. You still have the same amount of capital. You have the same amount of you know, productive ability. It hasn't actually increased any value. It's just increased the sum of dollars. So in comparison to the rest of the world, they look at the United States being able to just print money. We're the only ones that can legally counterfeit our own money, mm-hmm. turn it into monopoly money. So when we're buying things like oil and they see us keep printing money, what's that going to do to the price of oil? I filled up today 16 gallons of gas or 15 gallons of gas ended up being 60-some dollars. Mm-hmm. And if we, what, almost approaching $4 a gallon, people are saying that, that the price of oil, it's not that the price of oil is going up, it's that the value of the dollar is going down. Right. So it's going to take more dollars to buy that same amount of oil. It is, absolutely. So, it, go ahead. And it's going to, I mean, when you think about the effects of that, too, it's just around the nation, I mean, around the, uh, the world right now, people are starting to question the dollar. And there's all kinds of talks in all different groups about, you know, getting off the dollar and going on to something that's, that's more, uh, you know, it's based on something. It's if based that on, happens, what, what will that do to the price of gasoline at the pump? It potentially, it, it would skyrocket. It could, it could, I mean, it could be devastating for our entire economy if, if that happened. Right now, you know, we've benefited a lot from the fact that we have this dollar that's worth so much. And over time, we've continued to do everything in our power to destroy that. And it's, yeah, it's something we're going to have to stop. 
So we as a nation have been very resilient. We've been just have a great history. We're faced at a, we're facing a crisis right now, mm-hmm. but we want to be optimistic. We want to be hopeful for the future. What can be done? What really needs to be done in order for us to have a bright future? In order to get us back on the right track? What do we need to do? Well, we need, one is citizens need to be active in their government. And, you know, for a long time, you know, and I was this way for a while where I would, you know, I'd watch Fox News and I'd pay attention and watch the History Channel and read the articles. And, the, and you know, you think, you know, you become an educated and informed. But, you know, I was disillusioned with the process. You know, I saw when George Bush was in office that, you know, even though I liked some of the things he was doing, a lot of them, you know, he was taking us in the wrong direction. He was spending out of control. He was doing all the things the Democrats were doing. And I had, you know, I had personally put a lot of time into fighting to get him in office. And, you know, I saw that, you know, I was completely disillusioned and tired and thinking, well, if I fight, you know, for someone to be in office and they turn around and they do the opposite of what, you know, I thought they stood for, you know, then what do I do? You know, I wanted to just throw my hands up and go home. But we can't do that. You know, as, as citizens in a country, if we hope to remain free and we hope for our children to remain free, you know, we have to get out there and be on the front line. We have to be willing to, you know, go to those community meetings, show up at the town hall, whether you, it's a Republican or a Democrat, show up at that town hall and make your voice heard. And if you believe, you know, read the Constitution, read the founding writings, find out why, why are we in the situation we're in? Why were we the greatest country in the world? How do we get here? So relearn the, the history, relearn those principles, and the, I guess the Tea Party is one of those ways to do that. Absolutely. I've attended, attended a number of Tea Parties, and I was so encouraged to see my friends and neighbors there learning the Constitution, taking a part in this, and that to me is <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, just really encouraging because... In order to get us back on track, we need to learn what made us great and successful in the first place. we got a break here, so we'll, we'll uh, wrap this up. We'll start again in a minute. Welcome back. Uh, we're continuing Clark County today. David Medor interviewing, uh, having a conversation here with David <laughs> Hedrick. We're talking about the currency, the uh, getting back to the, the Tea Party, the, mm-hmm. which is a means for learning, relearning our Constitution, the principles that made our country great. That's a good thing. I've heard the Tea Party been portrayed by the, in the media as uh, right-wing extremists, as uh, uh, all these negative terms. Why is that? I mean, my experience is that there are people, or friends and neighbors, just relearning uh, what should be still taught in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been very decent people. Well, I think you know, it's, it's one of those things where if you can't argue against their message, argue against the messenger. You know, try to paint that messenger as an evil person who, you know, wants to go out and destroy the world and, you know, do all these evil things. And if you can do that, no one will listen to the messenger in the first place. I think that's kind of the idea. And we see that on the left. We see it in the media. And, you know, I've been at a lot of Tea Party rallies. I mean, I speak at a lot of Tea Party rallies. And I've never seen, you know, hate at Tea Party rallies. I've never seen, you know, bigotry and racism and, you know, all of those things that they portray. Well, they must be at the other Tea Parties because I've never seen them at one I've attended. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I've, uh, you know, it's, it's the Tea Party isn't about that. And the Tea Party isn't about even Republican Democrat. It's not about that. It's about holding representatives accountable and returning to the foundational values that our country, you know, where, where we came from. And it's about returning to the Constitution. And you find people at the Tea Party that don't agree on everything. And I have a lot of friends where, you know, we're all Tea Party people and we have different opinions on many different issues uh, where we don't line up perfectly. But the Constitution is kind of where we intersect, where we say, okay, well, let's go to this and let's solve the problem. And, you know, I think that's a lot of what the Tea Party is doing. And they're not just holding Democrats accountable, they're holding Republicans accountable. And I think that as people see more and more of that and they see that, you know, while they may align more with Republicans on many issues, they're not Republican. 
necessarily. They're the Tea Party, and and they'll hold they'll hold the Republican representatives just as accountable as they will the Democrats. Which is a good idea in any case. Mm-hmm. We have we the people and and Tea Party. What's the relationship? Well, I think We the People is kind of our local, if you're referring to the local We the mm-hmm. People chapter mm-hmm. there, uh, I think that's kind of our local Tea Party hub is how I feel. They're kind of where the Tea Party comes together and, and organizes and becomes educated. And that's one of the great things I think We the People has done is they have focused on uh, education. If you talk to their members that are regular members and attend their meetings, you will find people that are well-read. They know they can tell you who Samuel Adams is and they can tell you what he wrote. They can tell you the theories behind not just the Constitution, you know, what's in the Constitution, but the theories behind it and why they did what they did. And, and you know, so these are very uh, bright intellectual people. And, you know, they're often portrayed as the opposite, which is, which is humorous because they're actually, you know, they're, they're smart people <laughs> in that room. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that, you know, that's the, I see We the People as bringing them together, educating them, and then not only educating them, but then giving them a direction and saying, okay, now we're going to bring the candidates in. You've been educated. You know what the Constitution means. You know the founding. Let's bring the, all the candidates in, Democrat, Republican. We're inviting all of them. And you're going to vet them. You're going to ask them questions, and you're going to see if they're consistent with the values that you have and the values you know our nation was founded on. And so they, so first they make an educated citizenry, and then what they're trying to do is then show them, okay, find the if it's the person you're going to back or the idea you're going to back, whether it's the Columbia River crossing, you know, take look at these things that we can do in our community that aren't necessarily reflecting the values that our founders had. And now let's go out and let's try to fix them, branch out and, and accomplish things. So the Tea Party or the We the People, it's the focus there is not just the federal government. It's not it's not just simply the the top end, but all the way at every level. You're talking about low, uh, local level, your local city council, even your your local school board. Is, is that is that true? Absolutely. And I think you know we often you know when you listen to talk radio and everything, so much is focused on the federal government. But, you know, we have to realize that we, our founders wanted a very local government because they understood that in our own backyard, you know, we can go out and solve problems. You know, we can't talk to, you know, you can't go talk to Jamie Herrera every day. It's difficult. She's in Washington, D.C. There's, you know, I'm sure you can access her, but, it, but it's much more easy to go talk to perhaps Mayor Levitt, show up at his meetings. And, 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 you know, if you don't agree with what he's doing, let him know. If you do agree with what he's doing, let him know. And they understood that when they're in your own community and when government's right here, it, they're accessible to the people, and and they're not only are they accessible, but there's consequences to their decisions, and it's immediately felt because the people are right there, yes. and the people will let them feel it. Right, and there's two ways that you can either go to the city council meetings or these formal meetings and just simply have a, a timed little slice in time to be able to talk to them, mm-hmm. or say something they can't even say anything back normally, or you can invite them to have a conversation with you. And I know the, the We the People have done that. In fact, I, just mm-hmm. a couple of months ago, uh, Tim Levitt, along with a number of other in, individuals, have been invited to speak, and they had a lot of questions, and it was a very healthy interaction. It was very good. I would also I- extend to each of the elected people, each, anybody who has authority, anybody who really has a, uh, an informed position on any issue, to uh, I, you're invited to come <laughs> sit down and talk. And whether, regardless of where the position is, to get this out in the open so that we can talk about it, we can, inter- we can interact, we can have transparency, openness, honesty, truth, forthrightness, all of those things that move us in the direction of being more informed. Mm-hmm. It's not just the informed, uh, just looking at our history back then and mm-hmm. the foundations and the principles and the Constitution that keep us all on track, 
but it's also just keeping informed as to our local representatives now, our issues that face us now, and how do they play out with our form of government? Is it consistent with it or not? I see a lot of inconsistencies here. Yes. I'm, I'm new to this whole thing. I've been involved mm -hmm. in about a year, and I'm surprised to see what I see. And I think it may be, it's surely a result of citizens not being involved. We've been just too busy with our businesses and with our, our, our jobs, our school, our, our kids, our families. Mm -hmm. And we have to participate. We have to get involved. Otherwise, who's going to fill that gap? And that's our responsibility. I mean, if we care about our children, the next generation we're leaving mm -hmm. behind, it's up to us, you know, to stand up and to go, like I said, go to those meetings and get the education, number one, and then once you have that education, use it by going out and actually making something happen with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that's what the Tea Party has done, is it's taken people that have been sitting on their couch, you know, screaming at the television for years saying, you know, I want this and I know this is wrong and, and what do I do? And they said, okay, we're gonna hold a rally, we're gonna show up at these events, we're actually going to take that knowledge that you have, you know, and we're going to go out there and we're gonna use it. Mm -hmm. And we're gonna put it, you know, for work, for good in our community. Yes. And we have to do that as citizens. If we want a better community, it's up to us to actually make it happen. Right. The citizens need to be able to connect with each other in our community. And that's part of what we're doing here. That's, mm -hmm. We're attempting to bring, to empower people so that people can speak without a filter. So you don't have to go to the newspaper and see what they print mm -hmm. and their side of the story because they have their agenda too. They have their viewpoint and <laughs> it would be better to not have that filtered. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of people are starting to use, and that's one of the social media things, yes, they're using other avenues. Like, this is going to yes. be a great way yes. where they're going around. They're not going through the paper anymore. They're not, yeah, acting yes. as a filter, interpreting. Papers are on the way down. Saying. Yes. And direct communication is on its way up. Yes. I look at, at uh, just the Internet, the ability for the Internet to be able to get turn on the lights mm -hmm. and let people figure out what's going on out there. I, I asked our, our uh, pastor, he has a daughter that's uh, in, serving in Tunisia, uh, why did the people reject their government there? And the answer was that the uh, CRC leaks. Well, CRC leaks, what that had to do with changing the government out, taking out a dictator and tyrants in government. And it was that the people discovered that the person in charge was a tyrant. And it was disrespected by the community, by the community, the world community. Mm -hmm. And that is also the case when it comes to Egypt, a big dictator like that, turn on the lights. The, the ability for people to be able to see, to hear firsthand what was hidden from them before. Mm -hmm. So get things done out in the open. Right. <laughs> so this, this has been a, a challenge and a, it's, it's a fun experience for us to be able to go through. We're mm -hmm. learning how to do it. And uh, I, I'm, I'm encouraged to see us all moving in that direction. Absolutely, it's great. And it gives people the chance, too, that you know, have run for office or are running for office or sure. working in politics. It's great to, I mean, you hear the story that I told today, you would never have gotten that story from the Columbia. No. You never would have gotten it direct. You got it directly from my mouth here. Yep. And that's how you know the whole, now the whole story is out there. And I, wish, I just wish you, that your wife wasn't so shy that she could come <laughs> on and, and she could say, yeah, that's, that's really you know, the, the scoop. Be able she to is, hear from her as well. She's camera shy. She is. <laughs> she did good at the trial, but she, uh, yeah, she's quite camera shy. She, she wrote a statement too. The Colombian had put the whole thing in there mm -hmm. uh, online originally, and then they had pulled it and only put a small segment of it, 
where she actually, and I'll make sure you get a copy of that. I don't know if you can link it somehow. We, we, she, we can link it. Okay, yeah, yeah. She, she had done, this is early in the process. This was before sure. the no contact was actually still in place. I haven't even spoken to her yet. And she had actually already written this paper and sent it to the Colombian and basically saying that I hadn't done anything and that it was her. Well, here's just one idea. If your wife is a little camera shy, whatever, yeah, maybe she can write something and she can sign it, you know, just, sure. just to, to be able to communicate to people who want to know, to hear from her, and at least in some respect, is this the straight scoop? Are we getting one side mm -hmm. of the issue here? Are you really backing up your husband, or you feel pressured on this thing? Mm -hmm. So it would be it would be helpful. I would encourage her, but no pressure, uh, just to allow her to be able to have her voice as well. Right. Sure. Yeah, and we'll make sure we'll make sure you get something like that. Yeah, she's a. You know, I said this earlier. You know, she has her own career, her own. You know, and this kind of you know when this kind of thing happens, it's difficult. And it's difficult sure. to put it out there and to, and even yeah. me coming on, you know, we talked a lot about it before, before I did. And I had to have her on board because, you know, I'm going to put things out there that are, you know, this is the brutal yeah. truth. And it's not always pretty, but this is, you know, this is life. And, you know, people go through these things and they learn from them. And, yeah. you know, she was 24 years old and she uh -huh. made a mistake and, you know, it's, you know, it happens. So your wife's name? Megan. 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 Yes. So I just want to say, Megan, thank you. Thank you for letting your husband tell the story. Thank you for letting the truth get out there. It would be, a, I'd encourage you to go ahead and, and uh, write something and communicate in some means so that we can understand your point of view. It would be helpful. So thank you. Well, You've thank both you. been very transparent. Mm -hmm. You've been honest and open with the community, which I think is always a, a good thing. It takes guts. It takes courage. Mm -hmm. It takes transparency to do that. Well, thank so. you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity. I think this is a this is definitely a great way to communicate with the citizens and to you know put yourself out there and say this is this is me. This is you know we we all have you know we all have life and <laughs> we all you know live and we and, are all flawed. We yeah, all make absolutely. mistakes. We all learn from those mistakes. I get my wonderful uh, profound principles from children's stories, mm -hmm. and uh, one of my favorite stories is Meet the Robinsons, where a little little guy learns to celebrate his mistakes because that's how he learns. It makes mm -hmm. us all better. We all do that. We're all human, and we where we can help our mistakes can help someone else. That is some good that can come from that. Absolutely. So thank you very much well, for thank sharing. You. Thanks Appreciate for having it. me on. Yep. Yep.